In our Advent Bible study, we looked at the way each of the four Gospels begins the story of Jesus. Mark's Gospel, the first written and the shortest, begins with a bang. Jesus just appears, and he gets baptized, and he is tested in the wilderness, and he succeeds, he wins over the devil, and then he gets to work. And for Mark, Jesus comes to battle evil and set people free from all kinds of bondage. At the other end of things, the Gospel of John doesn't begin with a story, but with a, a mini theological treatise. John wants to make two things clear. One of them is that Jesus and John the Baptist are not the same person, and that Jesus is greater. And, despite all that popular philosophy and religion of John's day say about how humans and God can become one, John says Jesus, God's word in the flesh, becomes one of us. He doesn't come to deny the value of our life on this earth and in our bodies. He lifts up human flesh as God's chosen way of revealing God's self and communicating with the world. And, uh, and that's complicated. Mark's gospel is much simpler, but complication, that's what John is all about. We know Luke's story best, of course. We know the first two chapters of, of Luke. And after a long build-up and lots of activity by angels and God's Spirit, Jesus is born. And shepherds are the first to hear about Jesus' birth. Angels come to the shepherds, and they tell them that this newborn is the Savior, is the Lord, in fact, has all the titles of Caesar and is far greater than Caesar. So, for Luke, God comes in Jesus to turn the empire upside down, and he starts, he starts with Palestinian nobodies shepherds. We've been reading from Matthew's gospel in our Advent services, and through the rest of, of this church year, we will be working through the gospel of Matthew. Luke begins with Mary. Matthew begins with Joseph. Matthew wants to tell the story of Jesus within the frame of Hebrew prophecy. And Matthew wants to show us Jesus introducing a new kind of righteousness. So Matthew's Jesus fulfills the highest aspirations and the boldest prophecies and the most demanding laws of the Hebrew way of life. Matthew tells us that God speaks to Joseph through angels while Joseph is sleeping. And Matthew doesn't say that shepherds were the first to receive and recognize and broadcast the good news of Jesus' birth. So Matthew brings us today strange, unusual figures. They're students of the stars. They're, they're seekers of truth. And they come to Bethlehem via Jerusalem. But they receive the announcement, the star in the sky, and they recognize Jesus for all he is and will become. Now, for Matthew's people, Matthew's first readers, this is shocking. 
These visitors, three or twenty or however many, they're others. They're foreigners. They don't believe in Israel's God. This is the way that Matthew shows us that Jesus didn't just come into the world to lead his own people further into God's kingdom. Jesus turns the world, as everyone has known it, upside down. If we look in a dictionary for a definition of epiphany, the first thing we will most likely find is a reference to the Christian celebration on January 6th, because the word epiphany with a capital E has been co-opted and owned by the Western Church. But look a little further, and a good dictionary will break it down for us. Merriam-Webster says an epiphany is an appearance or manifestation, usually, of a divine being. And Collins says an epiphany is a moment of sudden insight or understanding. So if we put those together, we can say epiphany isn't just about God revealing God's self in a striking way, like a new star in the sky. Epiphany also means we get it. The magi don't just see the new light. They get what it means, and they know what they have to do. There's no backstory, so as far as we know, they didn't hesitate or question. They just set out to follow that star. Now, they don't know, of course, that the Hebrew prophet Isaiah pretty much described them and their gifts 500 years ago. But Matthew wants us to make that connection, and with our psalm today as well, because Matthew believes that Jesus is good news for the whole world, and that God has been planning that for generations. Well, somebody else has an epiphany after he hears why they have come so far. Herod, king of Judah. It's little more than a title under the Romans, but the title is still king. And does Herod believe in astrology, as the visitors do, or in the Hebrew prophets, as the people around him do? From what we know of him, probably not. But what he discovers is that word is out that a new king of Judah has been born. And if those foreigners have heard it, and if the scribes and priests of Jerusalem know about it, Herod's position is even shakier than before. This is one of those details that we find in these stories that are so fantastic for us. One of those details that is entirely believable. We may conclude that the whole of the story is illustrated theology, not strictly history, but this part and the sequel, which tells, gives us Herod's reaction to the birth of Jesus, these connect with human history in every age and our time too. When power is confronted with truth, new truth, God's truth, power does as Herod does, 
Power lies and stalls and fakes it until a reaction can be organized. And it seems it's always a violent reaction. The mysterious visitors find their way to Bethlehem. They pay homage, which is what Herod says he wants to do. They bow down before a true king. The Magi present their strange and symbolic prophetic gifts. And like Joseph in a dream, they're warned to go home by another way, not stopping in Jerusalem. Herod does what the powerful so often do. He sacrifices the innocent, the babies and toddlers of Bethlehem, to shore up his position and power, such as it is, under the Romans. Epiphanies, manifestations of new truth, always threaten the powerful of the world. And not just the powerful. They threaten anyone who insists that the status quo is the way things are meant to be. The status is quo, the thing that is given, because God makes it quo. There's no room for epiphanies in the worlds of the Herods and Hitlers and Stalins and Maos and Putins and, I'll say it because some of you have already gone there, the Trumps. And there's no room for epiphanies among those who profit from the actions of the powerful. New truth Anything unpredicted, unprojected, unexpected threatens such powers as these. And we may look south of the border first, but we really should be looking all around the world, to Eastern Europe, to Africa, to India, to see how the powers work, leaders, parties, legislators, doing whatever it takes to hold on to power and increase their pleasure from power. Look at what, what I can do, and I can do anything I want, and I can get away with it. Herod slaughters children in Bethlehem. Trump takes food away from hundreds of thousands of people in cages, tens of thousands of refugees and migrants. In India, Prime Minister Modi builds concentration camps to accommodate a million and a half detainees, mostly Muslims, whose very existence apparently threatens his party and his plans. And that's just in one state. He's only getting started. So Christians in India fear they are next on the government's agenda. This is what happens still today. So Herod's reaction to the new truth is entirely believable to us. Today, the innocent suffer. The people, the gospel writers tell us Jesus came to set free, to heal, to lift up, and to save. They pay the price. In the odd and wonderful tale of the wise men and the sequel to it, Matthew tells us Jesus didn't just come into the world to lead his own people, including us, further into God's kingdom. Jesus turns the world as everyone around him has known it, the world that we have known 
and may assume must always be. He turns it upside down. The minor English nobleman, John, 1st Baron Acton, 13th Marquis of Grappoli, isn't remembered for much. Interesting name, though. But really, he's remembered for just these words. Power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. And Acton wrote those famous words in a letter to a bishop. He was writing about the church, not about any worldly powers. Whenever the church has made peace with the powers, it has employed the tactics of the powerful. But the church's history of reaction to epiphanies, new truth, isn't great. It took more than 350 years till 1992 for the Roman church to pardon Galileo and admit he was right. When he had his epiphany and concluded that the whole universe doesn't revolve around earth and human beings are not at the center of all things, including God's love and concern. When he had his epiphany, he was punished. And yet we take what he discovered for granted. Eighteen centuries passed before Christians around the world agreed that the enslavement of one powerless race by another powerful race was not God's will. We take this for granted. From 1875 to 1966, our Presbyterian Church in Canada insisted that only men were worthy to hold office in the church as ruling and teaching elders. Despite all evidence to the contrary and the church's dependence on the ministry of women, we take that for granted. But none of these positive changes could have taken place without epiphanies, big and small, along the way, finally defeating the powers within the church. So here we are on the day before Epiphany, January the 6th. And on the day after Epiphany, Tuesday evening, our Presbytery of East Toronto will vote on remits, policy proposals. And if they're approved by a majority across the church, the Presbyterian Church in Canada will recognize two realities. One is that the church is divided, at least for now. The other is that there are many Presbyterians in Canada who believe sexual orientation and marital status should not determine whether or not God is really calling a person to ministry. And that these things don't matter when a congregation calls a minister, don't matter in any matter of membership or leadership or marriage in the church. And so many Presbyterians believe this is the result of epiphanies, the dawning of a new truth, as has happened so often since the beginning of the church. And so we will be deciding, presbyteries all across the country, whether this is the way to move forward. It's, it's a compromise. But behind it, I believe there's some new light. 
but will we take a hundred years to recognize it? That's a good question. We are blessed by those who speak out boldly about the climate crisis. We're just reading, just reading the other day Greta Thunberg's story and how, as her parents said, she was effectively mute until a year and a half ago as a function of her autism. When she had her epiphany that she could speak out and do something but the, uh, to draw attention to the climate crisis in a very dramatic way, she found her voice. And she hasn't stopped speaking since then. Epiphanies happen, but will we recognize them? Will we get it? Amen. Glory to God.